Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni with you. And we have with us for this next segment, Litigation Council at the New Civil Liberties Alliance, Shang Lee. Shang, welcome back to Administrative Static. You're becoming a regular. Thanks, Mark. And always happy to be here. <laughs> well, uh, Shang's been doing great work on a number of fronts for NCLA, but the particular case we've invited him on the show to talk about today is GH Package Product Testing and Consulting, Inc. v. Buttigieg. Uh, Buttigieg, of course, being Pete Buttigieg, the Secretary of the Department of Transportation. So why is uh, why is NCLA suing the Department of Transportation, Shane? So here, what happened was the department has uh, begun an unlawful administrative adjudication against our client, GH Testing, for, uh, well, GH Testing is a laboratory that tests various materials and, and packages. And uh, the department is alleging GH uh, falsified or had inaccuracies in some of these test reports. But instead of trying to prove these allegations uh, before a jury in front of a real court, the uh, department has dragged GH in front of its in-house tribunal where the, the deck is stacked against uh, the accused. Right, so we've heard this story before and, and the particular DOT uh, you know, sort of subdivision that's relevant here is the Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration, which is uh, PHMSA, which people refer to as FEMSA. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so FEMSA has, has brought this enforcement action. What makes the internal in-house administrative proceeding uh, unlawful? What is, the, what is the particular objection that, that you're lodging? Well, several. Uh, one, of, one of them is that the adjudicators at uh, FEMSA have not been properly appointed as required by a, a 2018 Supreme Court decision called Lucia. And, and in fact, about a year ago, FEMSA actually owned up to this and said its chief adjudicator, uh, this guy named Harold McMillan, was never properly appointed by the president or the secretary. They, they've now claimed that, uh, that McMillan has been reappointed, but, but there's no public records of, of it. Uh, just same, take the word for it. With its intermediary. Exactly. And the whole point of, of having these uh, appointments be public is so that uh, you're accountable. Um, so that if, if the adjudicator, whether it's the ALJ or the chief adjudicator, issues a decision that's you know, so, just terrible, the public knows who to blame. But as it is, without a public record, you don't know if these adjudicators uh, or ALJs were appointed by Trump or Biden or somebody else. And so there's no, no accountability for the president. And that uh, spoils the whole purpose of the appointments clause. Yeah, and not just that, but you also need to have a cutoff date, right? So if if he's improperly appointed and then he gets properly appointed, you need to know what date that is because the things that were done before that date need to be treated legally different than the things that happen after that date. And if you don't know what the date is because there's nothing public telling you what it is, then that doesn't really put people on notice of what their rights are. Yeah, and that's right. And relatedly, the, uh, the ALJ and the, uh, the chief safety officer, McMillan, they're also uh, protected 
so they're exercising the president's power in issuing decisions in presiding over the uh, DOT's in-house tribunal, but they can't be disciplined by the president for, um, for you know, mismanagement or making bad decisions. And, and that's a, a, a violation of what's called the take care clause of the Constitution, which the Supreme Court held was the case in, in a case called free enterprise. Yeah, and then there's one other problem that, that really sticks in my craw uh, when looking at this case. And that's that, that this uh, McMillan gentleman who, you know, look, he may be a fine gentleman for all I know. I've never met the man. I don't know much about his history, but I do know that he's never cited against the Department of Transportation in any of his rulings ever. I know that about him. And I know that he's really not a judicial officer. I mean, at least that's not his full-time job. His, his main job is in an executive function within the agency. So you really have an executive who's temporarily putting on a judicial hat. And that seems like a problem too. It, it really is. In particular, because this McMillan actually is dual hatted. He's also the, uh, the kind of the executive director or the, almost like the chief of staff of the agency. And in that capacity, he actually oversees, according to the website, all of the agency's functions, it's, you know, quote unquote, FINSA wide, the agency is called FINSA. So among those functions is the prosecution, the decision to charge our client. So he not only, you know, supervised the people who charged our client, but now he's going to adjudicate that decision. Imagine being accused of a crime. And when you show up the courthouse, you learn that the judge is the chief of police, right? Yeah. That, that's essentially not even going the chief of here. police. The, the guy who decided to bring the case, like the prosecutor, the chief prosecutor, right? Yeah. And, and so, hmm, boy, I was right to bring this case. Your, your Honor, these defendants are, are really guilty. And then he gets up on the bench and he's, oh, yes, that's a good point. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's almost that bad. So, so th there's so many problems with, uh, with these adjudications. And, and, and one more thing that we haven't touched on is the fact that, uh, that the penalty that, that the uh, the agency is seeking is uh, a fine, a, a civil penalty, a deprivation of property, which, uh, which you know, according to the Seventh Amendment of the Constitution, uh, our client has a right to a jury trial to determine whether that deprivation can be uh, uh, can be lawfully uh, lawfully imposed. And, and and moreover, that any sort of deprivation of property in this way requires an exercise of judicial power. That is to say, a real Article Three court. And, uh, and, you know, an executive official like uh, Mr. McMillan or like the uh, administrative law judges who are employed by the agency, they're, exec they're exercising only executive power. They can't exercise judicial power to deprive, um, to deprive property and impose a civil penalty. Right. So I'm hearing you say that there's an Article II problem. There's an Article III problem. There's a Seventh Amendment problem. <laughs> Which problem do you think is the worst? I, it's hard to say. I mean, I, some of these problems are maybe addressed by a, a Supreme Court decision that's, that uh, cert has been granted on called uh, uh, Jarkasi, but uh, uh, the, the Article 2 and the um, jury trial problems. Um, but, you know, I, I think any of them independently uh, makes this proceeding unconstitutional. And for many, many years, uh, the accused, like our client, will just have to sit through these proceedings and wait until the very end before they could challenge any of these problems, which could be really expensive and laborious, and most of them just capitulate uh, and roll over. Uh, but, but not anymore because of a Supreme Court victory 
uh, NCLA Supreme Court victory this spring in, in, in Cochran v. SEC, where the court said uh, for constitutional and structural uh, claims against an agency adjudication, you can proceed directly in federal court. And Shang, I think you, you – just so uh, I heard it differently, but Jacarezi has been accepted by the Supreme Court. Yeah, on June 30th, right, yeah. they granted cert. So they're yeah. gonna they're gonna go over that, but the, the I think it's Jarkesy though, just yeah. just so our our team knows. Right. Oh, Jarkesy, sorry. Yeah, and and the other um, and 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 uh, the poor man has had his name butchered for about two years now <laughs> in many different, different venues, five different right, ways. Exactly. I've heard six ways from Sunday. Exactly. But um, the the you've moved for preliminary injunction here, right? That's right. We we're not waiting for the Supreme Court's decision. Uh, in Cochrane, the Supreme Court, uh, writing unanimously, said being subject to an illegitimate agency proceeding is a here and now injury, and therefore our clients right now, the the agency proceeding against our clients is uh, is happening right now. Uh, we had a, there was an, a, a preliminary hearing in uh, in July, and uh, a, the administrative law judge, who we say is, is improperly appointed and improperly exercising power. Uh, issued a bunch of deadlines, including discovery deadlines, briefing deadlines, uh, and being subject to those deadlines is a constitutional injury. Not to mention that uh, while we're providing pro bono services, the client is proceeding in the administrative hearing on, um, you know, with counsel it hired for 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 that, and it, you know, they're they're paying money uh, right now property. to, yeah, to, to proceed there. Yeah. So and, and uh, the point of the oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to ask. So where do things stand now? With uh, so so NCLA has filed this, and I don't know. Did we say it was in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Ohio? We might not have said that's that. That's right. It's, so we yeah. filed this. Southern District. Of, oh. And we uh, have a conference with the court that was just uh, scheduled uh, with the court and the um, and the government uh, for right after Labor Day, uh, September five uh, in the afternoon. Okay. And, uh, and presumably there we'll, we'll hash out a briefing schedule and a timeline on um, how to you know resolve the the uh, uh, the motion. Sure, and and I suspect that's what will happen. Although I, if I were the judge, I'd be a little tempted to at least start the proceedings with a question to the government. Hey, haven't you already conceded in another case that you're unconstitutional here? Why can you just save us all a bunch of trouble and and you know concede that there's a problem? Uh, but I, I, yeah, guess I, I, I guess the I, odds aren't good of that. Probably not. And I think the government will probably say, well, we've since, uh, we've since fixed that constitutional defect with Mr. McMillan. We just haven't done it publicly, which, which I don't think is a good answer. And we'll see what the judge thinks. Yeah, I don't think that's a good answer. And, you know, look, if that were the only problem in the case, then I'd say, OK, I could see why the government is is going to fight this out. But, uh, you know, they've got that problem. They've got the removal problem. They've got the Seventh Amendment problem. I just it seems like. Uh, you know, FEMSA should probably tuck its tail between its legs and, and go home. Uh, but I don't know that that's what's what's going to happen here. Uh, can, can you say you know, we, we've got about 30 seconds left here, Shane. Can you just say uh, a little bit more about sort of the client and how this is impacting uh, the client? Yeah, the, the client is, is again, a, a laboratory that uh, uh, that makes these tests and being you know dragged through this process. It's a small company. It's family owned. It's got about half a dozen employees, and it just doesn't have the resources to go head to head with uh, um, with a you know a multi billion dollar government agency no, on no, the agency's own turf. 
We can't have DOT acting as prosecutor, judge, and jury against Americans like this. We've got to stop. Thank you, Shane. Thank you, Mark. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni with you. And we are joined by litigation counsel, Janine Yunus. Uh, welcome back to Administrative Static. And, and really, Janine is, is kind of a co-host now. She's been on enough that, uh, that we've, we've given her that title. So oh, thanks, Mark. <laughs> well, welcome, welcome back in a sort of co-hosting capacity. We'll, um, uh, but we didn't want to wait until uh, John or I was unavailable to get Janine on to talk about this next case. So uh, so she's here here today to talk about some developments in a case that NCLA has been working on for a while, uh, Norris v. Stanley. And so, but for our listeners who haven't been tuned in to this lawsuit against the Michigan State University, can you remind us what this uh, case is about, Janine? Yeah, so I think we filed almost exactly two years ago. Uh, this was a case um, in which three employees challenged MSDU's COVID vaccine mandate, and they all had natural immunity. So we submitted scientific evidence showing that natural immunity is as good or superior to the vaccines. I think all the scientific evidence that's come out since has shown that it's actually quite a bit better. Um, and unfortunately, we've lost uh, at every stage, although the district court has said some helpful things um, in its decisions, even though it didn't ultimately find for us like uh, that it may have come out with a different decision if it was deciding based on the science today, that sort of thing. Um, so we lost in the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, and we're asking for a rehearing on Bonk. So that's for the entire uh, Sixth Circuit to hear the case instead of just the three-judge panel. Right. And so typically when you ask for a rehearing on Bonk, you focus in on sort of one aspect of the case. You don't necessarily relitigate your entire... Uh, I mean, you do in the sense that if they accept it, then the whole thing but, is... But the main point of the argument is why the whole circuit has to look at it. That's mainly what you're arguing, not just reverse decision. That's right. right. So what is the, what's the sort of major problem with the panel decision that you think justifies the entire uh, Sixth Circuit to, to look at? It? We're arguing that this case, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, which which has driven most of the decisions in the country about vaccine mandates, uh, has been sort of wrongly construed, uh, isn't necessarily applicable to every situation. Uh, and this was a case from 1905, in which the Supreme Court said that a small town could mandate the uh, smallpox vaccine during a smallpox smallpox epidemic. It's unfortunately been incorrectly interpreted to stand for the proposition that all vaccine mandates are always uh, legal. And that's really not what a careful reading or, or even a not so careful reading of Jacobson. <laughs> uh, yeah. Says. If you read all the way to the end, it <laughs> yeah. definitely doesn't say that. <laughs> well, because they specifically say this, you know, this shouldn't be interpreted beyond the facts here. We're looking at the fact that this is an epidemic that threatens the safety of everybody. Uh, we, you know, smallpox was a very deadly disease at the time. It killed about 30% of those infected, whereas COVID has much, much lower rates. It's not really dangerous to younger people. So there are various factors. And also the vaccine in um, Jacobson, the smallpox vaccine was sterilizing. So it prevented transmission, 
which provided a public health rationale. Right. So if if a if a vaccine is sterilizing and it actually kills the uh, kills the virus, then that means that if you've been vaccinated, then you cannot pass the disease on to someone else. And they were saying early on about the COVID vaccine that, well, we think it's going to stop transmission. And then now they know it doesn't. And they've backed off of that of that claim. But but for our listeners, the reason that matters is even if you want to say that you need to take the vaccine, not for your own benefit, but for the benefit of other people, this was the old, you know, what about grandma sort of argument? You need to make sure you're not infecting other people. Well, that actually, that justification, whether you agree with it or like it or not, that actually does apply to the smallpox vaccine and is part of the logic of Jacobson. But that fact doesn't apply. We now know to COVID-19. And so to take the logic of Jacobson and apply it to COVID when you don't have a sterilizing vaccine doesn't really make legal sense. Yeah. And I think it's important that, uh, you know, this, that we differentiate between public health rationales and sort of personal health because MSU is an employer and I should have said these, so these were M- uh, MSU employees. The vaccine was mandated for students and employees. Um, you know, if, if employers can start to mandate things for your own good, where do you draw the line? I mean, should employers be able to say, well, you, you know, you have to lose weight so you're less susceptible to COVID or Eat broccoli. Or anything. Yeah. Um, so you miss less work days. That's, you know, one of the justifications that the court has given. So I think that uh, rationale should be rejected entirely when it comes to. Well, and and there's another thing. So this is a public this is a public employer. This isn't a private employer. Right. And the legislature in Massachusetts and Jacobson, they passed a law. They sure did. They went through yeah, or the Cambridge City Council. I think it might Yeah. Have been. But it was it was it was a law. It was not a policy that came from nowhere. Um, and that was important to the decision in Jacobson because they said these are the people who are responsible. Well, MSU is not responsible for that. The legislature and the governor of Michigan, who fight all the time or or used to, um, they they were responsible. The other thing that uh, is relevant here, I think, is in terms of how Jacobson has been misconstrued, is what the standard of review is. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so the um, courts have said that Jacobson says that Jake that <laughs> Jacobson um, requires only rational basis review for vaccines. And, and what is rational right. basis review for our non-legal audience? It's a it's sort of very relatively low level of review that says uh, you know the government just has to have some justification and there has to be a connection between the ends and the means. Um, as opposed to a higher level review when fundamental rights are implicated which can require requires um, showing that the the uh, the policy is narrowly tailored to meet the ends and there might have to be a more substantial relationship between the policy that's being pursued and the and the end it can't just yeah. be sort of plausible and I, I think it's worth I think you're you're understating the rational basis test because the government doesn't have to assert it if the court can think it up yeah the court can can uphold the policy if the court can think of some rational basis that it makes up on its own even if the government didn't say it yeah yeah so it's a very low standard but yet that's not actually what Jacobson said. No. Well, first, Jacobson was decided before the court came up with this, those tiers, tiered levels of review. and when Which you, are not in the Constitution, by the way, so don't yeah. go looking for them. <laughs> and Jacobson also talks about looking at the individual's liberty interests, uh, which rational basis review really doesn't. It just asks if the government has an interest in the ends that interest. So I, I don't think that Jacobson does use rational basis review or an equivalent um, Doesn't it even use the word substantial at some point? I the, think I'm almost certain. Yeah. And then there are uh, 
number of cases that were decided afterwards about uh, forcing pr prisoners to take psychotropic drugs that require well not to mention at... buck v bell <laughs> right. forced sterilization of of uh of folks with mental retardation i mean that's well, so the, yeah, so there are, there are sort of two arguments about why. So these other cases after Jacobson, um, I think, show that actually a higher level of review should be required when you're um, forcing somebody to take medication against their will or, you know, forcing them by threatening to take their employment away if they don't take it. Um, and then other, you know, another argument is that Buck versus Bell, uh, in Buck versus Bell, the Supreme Court said that the state could force women to get sterilized if they were mentally ill. And that was decided after Jacobson and actually cited Jacobson as a basis for the decision. Yes, so... <laughs> because the, the court said, and this is a quote, don't don't put this on me. The court said three generations of imbeciles is enough. Exactly. And so it used that to justify forced sterilization of American citizens using the Jacobson Use, precedent. Using Jacobson, yeah. So um, I think another point to be made is that even if Jacobson did exactly fit the facts here, it's outdated and shouldn't be, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't have a proper understanding of the liberty interests at stake. Yeah. The other thing that, that I think is really important to, to get to here is uh, antibody testing wasn't available in 1905. And so That's someone right. might think, in fact, I think Mr. Jacobson had some sort of notions that he might not need, need the vaccine. I can't remember if he thought he might've had smallpox yeah. or a mild, mild case or something like that. But but in any event, uh, in the 1970s, antibody testing was invented and it's been perfected. And so our clients all knew for sh they weren't just saying, oh, yeah, I think I had COVID. They had been tested. They knew they had nat natural immunity to COVID. They had already had the disease. They had recovered from it. They still had natural antibodies in their system. The whole point of a vaccination is to give you those antibodies in an artificial way. But they didn't need them because they already had them in a natural way. And so to force them to get a vaccine on top of the natural immunity isn't something that Jacobson ever justified. Right. That's right. And I think another point to be made is that the uh, courts have said, well, the CDC guidance said at the time that vaccinated people, sorry, <laughs> uh, COVID recovered people should get the vaccine. Um, so CDC guidance, relying on CDC guidance is sort of de facto or um, is basically rational basis. This means that you know, CDC guidance isn't really subject to any kind of judicial um, intervention. So the CDC can say anything and then employers or the government can adopt a policy on that basis. And there's no way to challenge it because you can't directly challenge the guidance since it's not final agency action. And, and that's what and that's what the court said in this case. They said, look, MSU, I can't say it's irrational for them to follow CDC guidance. How can I do that? He was kind of puzzled by that because it was kind of clear he didn't think CDC guidance was uh, the voice of God. But he said, I can't say it's irrational for someone to rely on it. But, which I sort of understand, except that they didn't rely on it fully. They right. relied on it sometimes when it was convenient and then not at other times when it was inconvenient. Yes, right. for the China for the China vaccines, which was absolutely China. Out, uh, yeah, exactly. Did I say it like him? So I just thought that was when I was because I, uh, I was out there with uh, Janine and it was absolutely outrageous that they said that these vaccines that have much lower uh, ability to even protect you from the disease than than our vaccines do. Uh, that was a OK. Yeah. And even the yeah. district judge, I remember, was sort of uh, at the oral argument was was not impressed with the idea that just because the World Health Organization had approved a vaccine that Michigan State University thought it was okay. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the, the problem with this decision is I think ultimately it means that in a public health uh, crisis, the government wins no matter what. And that can't be a rule of law, I don't think. 
well, it can't be a rule of law if we're going to maintain individual liberty in this yeah. country. That's for sure. Uh, so where do things stand now? We've got about 30 seconds left. So we've asked the entire court to hear the case and we're hoping they grant the petition. So, uh, and do we have any sense of the timeline uh, for that? Um, I don't know how long the Sixth Circuit has taken to decide on bonk petitions at okay. this time. But they'll, they'll circulate it. The judges yeah. will vote on it. Uh, they'll either grant on bonk or not grant on bonk. And if they do, we'll have an on bonk hearing. And if they don't, then we'll have to decide whether to take that to the Supreme Court. Exactly. Or not. Okay. Janine Yunus, thank you very much for being with us on Administrative Static and good luck with the Northeast Stanley case. Thanks for having me.